Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Today, I welcome back Tom Parada to talk about his latest novel, Tracy Flick Can't Win, out and available now and published by Scribner. Tom is the best-selling author of 10 works of fiction, including Election, where we originally met Tracy, and Little Children. Both those novels were made into critically acclaimed movies. And The Leftovers and Mrs. Fletcher were both adapted into HBO series. He's been on the show with me three times in the past with The Abstinence Teacher, The Leftovers, and Mrs. Fletcher. You can find those interviews up in our archives. Today we talk about drawing a temporal circle around your novel, how to take stereotypical characters out of the realm of stereotypes, how place can become a character in your novel, and so much more. Before I bring him on, a quick reminder that we're now offering some great perks on Patreon. We uh, started the page to keep in better touch with you and get your feedback, as well as offer some fun tips and tricks. You can see all the benefits by visiting www.patreon.com slash writers on writing. Any level of support helps us if the show has boosted your writing in some way. If you've gotten some useful advice, it's an easy way to reach back out to us, and we appreciate it all. On with the show. Tom Parada, welcome back. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I didn't realize this was number four. <laughs> number four. But I also realized we haven't talked since 2017 when life looked a little bit different for all of us. And in the intervening years, so Mrs. Fletcher was made into an HBO series in 2019. I know we talked about it in 2017. And Tracy has really been enjoying a kind of a life on her own. We can get into this, but, you know, she really has become sort of a cultural touch point in the last, you know, six to <laughs> six to eight years. So uh, congratulations on all of it. You know, thank you so much. So this is just, you know, an amazing time to to revisit Tracy, who, as I mentioned in the intervening quarter century, is, has become kind of this this cultural icon. And I, you know, I can already feel myself getting ahead of myself with questions. So maybe I'll force myself to sort of slow down. We might have younger people in the listening audience who who don't remember Tracy from, you know, 25 years ago. So I thought maybe I could just let you introduce us globally to her and how you came to uh, to revisit her now. Yeah, I think that that is great. And and I do think it, Tracy is so familiar to me and maybe to people who remember the original movie election and maybe not so much to to younger people. So I think that is a good opportunity to provide some some context. So I wrote election in 1993. It didn't get published till 1998. It barely made it into hardcover before the movie came out in 1999. And the movie introduced Reese Witherspoon to to America, I think. I mean, she'd been in a couple of movies before that, but you'd had to be a real, you know, movie buff to have known her name at that point. But that movie really made her a star. She played the character of Tracy Flick in Election. And Tracy is this ambitious high school girl who wants to become president of her high school. She wants to do everything. You know, she has a plan to kind of conquer the world but she also just she wants to be president of every club and she wants to star in the musical and she wants to get a scholarship to go to Georgetown and become a politician and she has a way of getting on people's nerves because she doesn't know how to I think moderate 
her ambition and and be a, a charming young lady. She's just a go-getter. And in those days, I think, you know, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, I think the world was grappling with this new generation of women who, girls and women who rightly felt that they could do whatever they wanted, that that they weren't second-class citizens anymore. And I will add, just because it's the right time to add it, that was the this generation of girls who'd grown up with Roe versus Wade in place with the sense that their fate was in their own hands. They didn't have to be wives and mothers at a, at a very young age, the way you know, previous generations of women had grown up. And, uh, you know, Tracy gets a lot of pushback from the boys and men in her world. Um, and in fact, Election is a novel about a high school teacher who finds Tracy so threatening in some way that he decides that he's going to knock her down a peg. And he actually tampers with the votes to prevent her from becoming high school president. And so it's it's really a, a dark comedy about a teacher who destroys himself because he's threatened by an ambitious young woman. And, you know, Reese Witherspoon was so great in election, uh, but the world sort of looked at her and, and saw Tracy Flick as a villain. And it's a very weird thing. You know, she sometimes would appear on these lists of like 10 you know, great movie villains. And, uh, <laughs> and would say, oh, she's so scary. Um, and in fact, a recent article I read, somebody reminded me that there was some critic who thought she was like a, a young Hitler. Um, <laughs> you know, just crazy uh, hyperbole. But it told you something about, you know, female ambition and the way it threatened men. And, and what, what happened, you know, mainly because Reese's performance was so tremendous was that Tracy Flick became a kind of catchword, as you mentioned before, for ambitious women. So Hillary Clinton was often described as a Tracy Flick and a number of other women politicians were described as Tracy Flicks. You can, it's fun to Google it sometimes and just see how often it would pop up. And uh, maybe in the past 10 years or so, some feminist critics started to wonder why Tracy was a villain. Not only was she victimized by the teacher who tampered with the votes, she had actually had a sexual relationship with another teacher. And I think given the way that society has evolved in looking at things like that in the past 25 years, suddenly, you know, Tracy was seen as a kind of a, a victim, though she had in the book and in the movie sort of rejected that that idea. She basically said, I you know, I did what I wanted and I had, I thought I wanted to be involved with this teacher. And then I realized I didn't and I broke up with him. And that was that I always had agency. I was never a victim. That was, that was an important part of, uh, you know, Tracy's line. But I think looking back now, society just doesn't see it that way. And I think so part, <laughs> I'm talking forever here. No, I but, love it. But, Great. you know, Tracy Flick can't win takes up Tracy in uh, 2018 and she's a high school principal in her 40s and me too is happening and she's looking back at her own story being a high school girl who you know had a sexual relationship with a teacher and she's reading about a lot of other women talking about similar experiences and she's starting to realize that this story that she told that this was her choice and that she wasn't a victim 
might not be the truth of the matter. Um, and so the book is some partly about the way that society has changed in those 25 years, but it's also partly about a character getting older and kind of revisiting her past in, in the light of a um, different cultural moment. And Reese Witherspoon is now 46, so she seems ripe to uh, return to the screen. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it, it would be amazing if it happens. I, I, um, yeah. Because the idea of seeing a character, seeing the same actor play a character as a teenager and then as a, a middle-aged person, like I can't think of anything like that you know and and the character is is so iconic and yeah i hope it happens you know there there are definitely conversations going on but nothing uh, concrete yet remind me where you were in the monica lewinsky scandal when you were writing this i'm trying to remember what year that I was, was i was way out ahead of it you were <laughs> perfect <laughs> because i i wrote this book i uh, wrote the book election in 1993. And it was oh, right. yeah. much about the 1992 campaign, which was the first Bill Clinton campaign. And it was the three-way, it was Clinton versus the first George Bush and Ross Perot was the spoiler candidate. So <laughs> That's right. three-way right. election that was you know very interesting and entertaining. And I kind of built my story around that, but it addresses very specifically the character issue that attached itself to Clinton then because he his affair with uh, Jennifer Flowers had been exposed during the campaign and Hillary stuck with him. And that was sort of one of the central parts of that. And, and I remember that I was so struck as a young writer by this idea of the character issue. And the character issue in politics said, if a candidate cheats on his wife, he will cheat on you the American public. Some attempt to draw a line between private behavior and public performance. And as a fiction writer, I just, I took that as a kind of a provocation because it's, you know, my, I think fiction exists to basically explore the gap between people's outward behaviors and their inner lives. And I always feel like there's some kind of disjunction between those two things that, that a lot of us have secrets and things that we're not saying and things that we're trying to hide and fictions that we're telling the world about ourselves. I think that was much maybe more the case back then when a lot of gay people were still in the closet and, and people struggled with their genders and silence, uh, etc. But I, I still think it's just true. You know, most of us, it's really true on social media, right? You hear it all the time. People are putting out these cheerful fictions of their wonderful lives full of wonderful meals and, and, you know, lovely days at the beach. And of course they leave out all their private struggles that you, that don't result in pretty pictures. And fiction is the best way to explore it. I remember elections sort of dealing with that interesting question of ethics versus morality too. And the, the, the kind of the gap between what's ethical and what's immoral or what's unethical and what's immoral. And that's, yeah, that's all those questions are just so ripe for fiction. That was a very funny moment in in the film, by the way. And not, I don't think it was in the the novel. This idea of that uh, Mr. M, who is a, you know turns out to be a very morally compromised teacher, is trying to teach his students about morality and and ethics, and and, <laughs> right. and he he himself gets lost when he's trying to draw the distinction between morality and ethics. <laughs> right. 
Right. Uh, but but the, the truth is that the person who has taken it upon himself to teach his students about morality is deeply confused himself about his own motives and ends up, you know, betraying his deepest principles, which which are good. You know, I think he's a, he's basically wants to be a good person. But when it comes to the test, he fails it. Yeah. So she came up quite a bit during presidential campaign. As you mentioned, she was, you know, Hillary Clinton was sort of compared to her. And then I was I was reading about her in The New York Times in like 2019. They did a story on Tracy Flick. And so I was wondering at what point you decided, OK, it's it's time to revisit this story. Was it was it during the, the 2016 campaign when you thought here's a time that's ripe for this character to, to make a reappearance? You know, like a lot of things. In, in my work, I, I find that I, I feel like decisions get made almost unconsciously, I think. So I, I did not know that I was writing a book about Tracy Flick when I started the book that became Tracy Flick Can't Win. I thought I was writing a book about a, uh, one of the important characters, a guy named Vito Falcone. He's a uh, former NFL football player. He only had a three-year undistinguished career in the NFL, um, but he's become a, a legendary coach. A, a legendary high school coach. He's in his mid forties and he's, he's suffering from symptoms that make him realize that maybe he has had a traumatic brain injury. And so he's in a, he's kind of spiraling. He's also a guy who his marriage is a wreck and he's trying, he's in recovery, trying to deal with his alcoholism and, and make amends to people that he's hurt. So I'm, I'm really writing about this former football player, this alpha male golden boy who now is a kind of a wreck. And and the idea was that he was going to get invited back to his high school to be inducted into a hall of fame and would go back and be confronted almost like a, in, in my mind early on, like uh, Scrooge, you know, <laughs> <Be like laughs> into the past. This, this guy thinks he's going to go back and be celebrated. But in fact, there are a lot of people who had a lot of grudges. Like that was the story I started to tell. And when I started to write the book about Vito, I started writing it like Election, which was a very distinctive book for me. Election has uh, six narr- six first-person narrators, and they sort of tell the story in little, almost like oral history bits, and they trade off, you know, two pages of Tracy Flick and a page from Mr. M, and then a page from Paul Warren, who is this other candidate in the election. It goes on like that. And I started writing this Vito book as if it were Election, and I said, as you know, as a writer, I was like a little puzzled by this because I didn't want to just be using this distinctive form that was just like a form I had used in another book. And I'm like, why am I using, you know, why am I echoing election mm. in this book about Vito Falcone? And I, I started to try and write it in other ways, but I kept going back to this feeling that it, it needed to be written in this form that was like election. And then at some point I just stopped and said, wait up, is Tracy here? And it was almost like like that's how I, I knew that she was. And once she was, she did kind of take over the book because she's such a, you know, vivid character to me. And I and I imagined to my readers and, you know, by making putting her in making her the title character, I sort of, you know, you just really put her at the center of this book. I think Vito is still a major part of Tracy Flick Can't Win, but it really turns out to be about Tracy because once I put her in this school, I had to fill in her entire history, like how did she end up here? How does she feel about her life and all that? But but so it wasn't so much a 
a conscious decision as a, a discovery. That, that's how it feels anyway, as a writer. I obviously made a choice to put her in there, but it felt like I discovered that she was already there. Um, and that's when things are, to me, work well, when, when the fiction feels a little bit mysterious and like it's coming from my unconscious and like I'm discovering a story rather than willing it into, into existence. But I, I think looking back, I would say that really the, the reason that Tracy was there was that I, as a, you know, a, a male writer of a, of a certain age, I think was looking back at my own work through the light of that Me Too moment, which was, I think, very uncomfortable for a lot of men. We had to go back and look at a, a lot of our, our personal experiences. And, and me as a writer, I had to go back and say, okay, I wrote a story about a high school girl who has a, a sexual relationship with a teacher. And, and she says, that was my choice. I, I wasn't a victim. And, and I, just, I, I think some part of me wanted to go back and, and make sense of that story. I wondered if Tracy still felt the same way in this Me Too moment. And, and the book really addresses that question head on. It does. And it, right off from the, from the opening. And I, I always think it's kind of difficult to figure out where to, to open a book, but, but that's exactly where it opens is she's reading the newspaper and she sees all, you know, yet another Me Too story, which causes her to reflect back. Before we get to that question, because I do want to talk about how to get in and how to get out of books, but but you raise this veto point and he's such a vivid character in here. And as you say, the, the novel, much like Election, is told from these roving first person points of view, but he isn't one of them. And I had to remind myself of that after I finished the book, I was going back and counting up the first person point of view characters. And I was like, wait, where's Vito? But he's so vivid and he's he's this very kind of close third person. So you do these five roving points of view, first person, and then the introduction to some of the chapters is this third person, you know, kind of close third person from other characters' points of view. I wonder if you could talk about that. First about choosing who the five were going to be, who, who the five voices would be, and then those lovely third person, you know, step back and get another character's point of view. Yeah, this um, is, is a, I think, the one thing that makes Tracy Flickant win somewhat different from Election. Election is sort of relentless in its first person-ness. Every, the, the whole story is a collage of uh, competing first person accounts of, of a high school election. And Tracy Flickant win combines first person sections with um, close third, which, which really is my preferred mode of fiction writing, like Little Children is a book of mine that, that uses that, The Leftovers uses that. I, I, I feel like it's just a, a mode that I'm really comfortable in. But I think what, what, what so the, the way that the, the perspectives get divided in Tracy Flickant win is that everybody on the high school committee that is choosing the, the uh, people for the Hall of Fame, they're telling their stories in first person. Yep. So that's Tracy, that's her boss, a principal named Jack Weed. Um, it's this guy, uh, Kyle Dorfman, who's a member, the president of the school board, who is funding the whole Hall of Fame. And it's um, two high school students who are on, on the committee as well. Um, so they're the first person narrators. And then all the... Uh, People who are in third person at Vito, a, a woman uh, named Diane, and uh, 
actually Wubs, and, and then there's a third person as well. Uh, but Vito and Diane are people who are being considered for the Hall of Fame. And the third person is a guy who went to high school with Vito and has some thoughts about him um, <laughs> that have festered over over the years. So so that was, it's kind of a funny thing. It's it really the, the, the this question about who's going to be in the Hall of Fame is one of the main through lines of the book. And that that is the dividing line. I think what, what happened, as I say, is that that early on, I was struggling. I'm like, why am I telling Vito's story as if this is election? And once I realized, no, Tracy is in this book, then I could put Tracy in the first person box inside the high school. And I, I realized that Vito worked better for me um, with, with a little bit more distance in the third person. And, and then that became a kind of dividing line. Okay, people at the high school uh, who are involved with this Hall of Fame, they're first person and, and everybody else is, is third person. So that can feel a, maybe a little arbitrary when I put it like that. I think it feels pretty natural on the page in the book. And, and as you say, I think you may not even realize it until you step back and, and think about how this, the story got told. So writing from that that third and that first, were there characters that gave you trouble that, you know, who were a little bit more difficult to access and therefore the third person was easier? Or, you know, were there were there even first person characters that you were like, I, I don't really understand this person or how they work and, and kind of talk about excavating them for yourself? So Tracy felt like meeting an old friend for me. Like, I just felt like as soon as I started speaking in her voice, I, I felt really comfortable. I felt like she was just right there. It was like when you go to your high school reunion and you see somebody you haven't seen for 20 years and you, you're you talking to them like you're still in, in high school. I think the character who gave me some trouble was Kyle Dorfman. He's this, he's younger than Tracy, maybe by five or 10 years. He's a, a guy who went to the Bay Area and made some money in tech in the early days of, of the internet. And he's returned home to his uh, hometown in New Jersey and is kind of throwing his money around in a way that a lot of people find obnoxious. And, and I, I, you know, I think the problem for me is there are elements of satire in my work, but I need to take my characters really seriously and not, not mock them. And I, I think Kyle was somebody who I felt an urge to, <laughs> to mock. I had to, I had yeah. to kind of, uh, and and I don't know that I completely succeeded in making him as real and em empathetic. Not, I, I, I'm not sure I empathized with him as well as I did with some of the other characters. So he maybe still feels maybe a little flattened by satire. He has so a nice that, wife, though. <laughs> he, does have, he does have a nice wife. And I feel like I did try to, like, at least explain his urges. Like, I, I think I think like a lot of my characters, you know, he has a version of what he's doing that makes sense to him. The reader can step back and say, well, he's probably lying to himself about some important things. And he's lying to the reader too, it turns out. I, I don't wanna spoil that, but I think he's like a lot of people who is putting out a story about himself that is as much myth as, as it is reality. Well, your book, like all of your books, deals with so many social bordering on political issues. I mean, we've got, as you, as you mentioned this, this major class issue that you just brought up with Kyle. We've got America's addiction problem with Vito. We've got America's gun problem. We've got we've got all of America's problem, not all of America's problems. Mm -hmm. We got we got a handful of America's problems in here. And I was wondering if because it, 
none of your books feel like they set out to be political. And yet some of them are, you know, pretty political. And I was wondering how you feel about that. Like, do you feel with now both this pretty significant literary and, and cinematic platform that you have in this country, any responsibility to sort of commentate on that? Or this is all just storytelling and these things get in there because that's just how life in America is? That's a great question. You know, I, I recently read Oh, William by Elizabeth Strout, which I thought was just oh. a wonderful book, but it felt so private, you know, <laughs> it really was just about this relationship. And I'm sure that it's, you know, surrounded by political consciousness. And there's certainly a class consciousness in that book, but I was, I was just struck by how private and interior it, it felt. And, and I, I feel like my work has, it, it just, for some reason, it just always comes out to grapple with public issues. I, it, that may be less true about a book like The Wishbones that I wrote when I was younger. That's a, a comic novel about um, these rock musicians who end up in a wedding band. And it's really about, you know, that moment in people's lives when they realize that their dreams are not going to come true. And what do they do then? Like, but but even that is sort of about fame and, and what, you know, what fame means in in, in our culture and, and what success means. And, and it is linked, in fact, to the story I tell about Tracy. And I think I've just become more and more of a public and, and political writer. Like, I, I can't think of a novel that it doesn't really grapple with bigger issues. I, I hope that yeah. it's not, it doesn't feel like uh, jammed in. You know, I, I really try to tell stories about people living their, what they think of as small lives. And and so I guess really what I'm talking about is the way that our lives are permeated with politics, even like the smallest decisions about like, what career do I have? Can I get that promotion? Like for Tracy, she's just, she's an assistant principal. She just wants then the principal retires and she's just trying to get the top job. And for she's eminently qualified. Everybody knows it. And yet things never seem to go the way that she wants them to. And she's just grappling with this idea of like, why can't I get what I deserve? And, and the question is, is it because of sexism? Is it because there's a glass ceiling that she keeps bumping into? Is it because the culture doesn't know what to do with a certain kind of ambitious woman who does not soften her ambition with a certain kind of charm. I think these issues just come out of what feel like private questions. And at least for, for me, it's like that. I, I know, you know, Vito is a guy who also has, as, as uh, I mentioned before, like he's grappling with brain damage come, that came from football. And, and so I guess, you know, maybe I get more interested when I feel like my characters' lives intersect with, you know, stories that, that are in the headlines. But I actually think everybody's lives intersect with these big social trends. And, and I, I feel like that's one thing that novels can really do, can talk about the way that even the most ordinary people are, are caught in political and cultural currents that are much bigger than they are. That, that you know, in a sense, we don't have private lives or or our private lives are always bound up with public undercurrents and uh, public upheavals. Yeah. I mean, certain things that I wouldn't have thought of were political when you wrote election turn out to be, you know, I, I just didn't think that much about sexism back then. I mean, I did. I don't know. That's probably a bad example, but, but, you yeah, know, no, just. No, no, but, but I, I think I had to, I had to stop and, you know, I, I reread election and I, I had to stop and think like, okay, where did Tracy Flick come from and why did I write her that way? And, and, 
you know, it's hard to go back uh, almost 30 years and, and confront something that you've written and try to figure out like, where did it come from? Because partly all that is mysterious. Like what's good about fiction writing is also complicated about it. Like you're not always in control of where your inspiration comes from. And, and I think I was aware that like there was a new kind of girl, young woman, young girl in the world, you know, that, that, cause I was teaching in Yale and Harvard in those years. I was a, not, not a professor, but a, you know, a sort of adjunct writing teacher. And so I was meeting all these incredibly ambitious and talented young women. And, and uh, I just felt like this is something new, you know, that they're so different from my mother's generation who were, I grew up in a working class, mostly Catholic place. And, you know, it was like a very traditional idea of what women were, you know, and I just felt like, oh, this is like a huge change. And I wanted to, to write about that. And, and I think, you know, part of it was, you know, and then it was kind of closer to a certain moment in the sexual revolution. And I, I realized reading an election that I had mentioned Madonna many times. And I think she was a person who made like a, huge impression on me then because she seemed so invulnerable, mm. so confident and so powerful and so willing to kind of use her power to make herself invulnerable. And I thought, oh, Tracy wants some of that. She mentions it a few times, you know, that just this idea that you can, you know, get what you want and not have to apologize. It had, that had been a real male prerogative. You know, I mean, somebody like Trump really embodies it in its most toxic form, but but I think there was that moment where Madonna was basically saying like, yeah, I want to live like that too. I want to be a rock star. I, I don't think that idea held out. Like, I don't think that idea of, of feminism where basically you could be like a man has really held up as, as a, an ideal for most women. But it was in the air in those days. It was a certain kind of empowerment feminism. I guess maybe the, uh, the girl boss feminism has some connection to it. But it was sort of very explicitly like you could be like a man and in like sometimes in the in the not, not so good ways, you know? Well, and certainly, I mean, that, that was kind of her conflict with her relationship with her high school teacher, right? She wanted to be in control. She wanted to say, I own that relationship. That was my decision. That's, you know, I was on equal power ground, which of course she wasn't with him. And yeah, I think, I think that's right. I mean, that, that sort of brings up one of the other things, which is so many of your novels deal with this, you know, component of sex, sexual power, women reclaiming sexual power and redefining it. And, and what struck at me most in this novel was it's kind of sad sex in this novel, right? I mean, there wasn't much of it and it was sad. I felt sorry for the women. Well, I, I think I think that's one thing that, you know, maybe does connect Tracy with this Me Too moment. Because one of the things that actually I found reassuring for me as a writer, not reassuring for me as a person in the world, but, but you know, there were just a lot of women who told stories like Tracy. Like there would be these stories about, you know, prep school teachers who had had multiple accusations of, of sexual abuse over over the years. And I remember reading this one in the Times and, you know, women were telling very different stories. Like some would say, I had a really nice time with Mr. So-and-so. And then I, you know, I went to college and just forgot all about him and lived my life. And that, but other people would say, like, I dropped out. I, I couldn't eat. I got addicted to alcohol. You know, this teacher kind of exploited them and, and traumatized them at that time. But for other people, the the sort of meaning of that, you know, quote unquote relationship or that or that um, episode of abuse, however you want to um, phrase it, didn't become clear to them till much later. And I think Tracy maybe is one of those people, you know, it's like 
sex is not a um in election she seems like a very sexual person at least in in the book maybe not so much in the movie but in tracy flick can't win she's somebody who doesn't seem to have a lot invested in that part of her life she's not really looking for love she feels pretty lonely and cut off from people and whatever romance has happened in her life it's not it's not a source of real pleasure or 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 pride to her and i think you know you could probably argue that something happened you know back then the way because you you see an election like she really thinks she wants to be with this teacher and then as soon as it happens it's like horrible to her and and uh, and she has to kind of disavow it in her own mind and i i do maybe think there is a kind of detachment that she's learned like she's just not going to go there again well and in this book and it, it's kind of a, a more subtle plot point but she has a daughter with i think the product of a of a relationship she had with a professor in college, right? Or law school. In, in grad school. Grad school, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And uh, so, I mean, you know, she kind of continued her trend and she has kind of this, you know, pretty disconnected, not close relationship with her daughter who generally would rather be with his dad. And that, yeah, I mean, it it kind of just kept playing out and you could see how she just kind of shut herself down after after all of that. I think, I think right, if, if we were looking at it from a kind of, therapeutic perspective it seems clear that there is some lingering trauma that that has made that has kind of disconnected her from her sexuality and maybe from the role you know i mean i think her disconnection from herself as a mother is sort of you know, that that's a sad part of the the story as well i think on the other hand this is a case where you could almost say like she is still like like a man or thinks of herself like a man like i think i think it's not so uncommon to see men in a situation of shared custody or divorce who are fairly comfortable with, you know, a very limited relationship with their kid, you know, right. but we judge women who, um, you know, good point. Yeah. <laughs> good point. Like, I think she's actually like, okay with being a very part-time mother because she is really still somebody who's interested in her own story and, and in kind of getting, to where she needs to get and, and she doesn't have a whole lot i think left over um, but she also doesn't see her daughter seems like a much more normal popular um friendly kid and i don't think she's fully recognizing herself and her daughter right <laughs> good point we'll be back with more from tom parada and tracy flick can't win in a moment you're listening to Writers on Writing. Another quick reminder to check out our Patreon page. If you're liking the show, if you've learned anything along the way in our over 24 years or so of thousands of episodes, you can visit us at www.patreon.com slash writers on writing. By becoming a backer, you can receive weekly writing tips and prompts and some other goodies. Let's get back to it with Tom Parada talking about Tracy Flick Can't Win. We should bring up also, so the m most all of your novels are set in, in some sort of suburbia. This one is no exception. And it also, you know, it almost becomes sort of a, a character itself in the novel. Like, I, I can't see this book taking place in Manhattan or downtown L.A. So I was wondering if you could talk about sort of bringing the, well, first of all, if if you sort of saw the the Trump phenomena or the the cultural division phenomena coming before it happened because you were kind of mentally living in these these suburbs for so many of your books leading up to that. 
and then just kind of bringing these places so to life. It sounds like that's where you live now and maybe where you grew up, but how you kind of make the place a, a character in your books. Yeah, well, that that is that's uh, <laughs> you're even just that question is such a good question for me, because I will first say, no, I did not see it coming. And I should have not because of what I write about now, but I think so let me just say, I've been living my whole life in suburbia, but suburbia is a very fluid category. So mm. when I grew up in New Jersey. I grew up in a very working class suburb. And, you know, then I went, I, I went from that working class world to Yale and, and moved away to, to a much more sort of prosperous academic suburb in Massachusetts. And so I, I've had two very different suburban experiences and, you know, literally speaking like two different class experiences. And the fact is that a lot of people I grew up with in New Jersey, a lot of working class people like Trump and almost nobody in the world that I live in, in Massachusetts likes Trump. And so I should have <laughs> seen that coming in a sense, you know, because I did know both places, but I think I got out of touch with, you know, those people I grew up with who were art Trump supporters. I think what would happen, I, you know, I connected with a lot of them on Facebook and I could see that they just existed in an entirely different sort of news world and uh, political world than, than I did. And one of the things that always used to irritate me was that they would talk about the world we grew up in as if it had been this kind of Mayberry utopia. And mm. to do that, they just have to like remove all this context, which was like, for instance, the town I grew up in was all white. Like it wasn't an expensive town. It wasn't economically exclusive, but black people weren't allowed. It was just one of those places. I, uh, you know, gay people were completely were harassed and, and nobody owned up to the fact that they were gay, you know. And it was also the, the era of Vietnam and there was a lot of people with uh, drug problems. You know, it's just this, somehow this idea that it was like Mayberry, it was like they were remembering a TV show, not our actual lives. And I remember being irritated by that, but it also became something that I think Trump really played on, some sense that it was great then and it's horrible now, which wasn't really my feeling of how the world had changed, especially because I'd been so thrilled when Obama had gotten elected and I just felt like, oh my God, you know, we've gotten better as a, as a country. Like there is some sense that we can maybe heal this huge wound on the body of, yeah. <laughs> of America, you know? And, and so I, I guess it was just, you know, I was betrayed by my own optimistic sense that we had gotten past the worst of our racism. And of course, you know, it just came roaring back with this vengeance and, you know, I'm still a little reeling from that. So no, I did not. I didn't see it coming. I could see some of the seeds of it, but my own sense of, you know, I thought Trump was ridiculous rather than evil. And I was naive about that. So tell me a little bit about, so because most of these characters, I kind of get the sense are on the conservative end of the spectrum. They, we don't get into that, but, but tell me a little bit about how that feels to kind of live in this New Jersey suburb, like, did you have to go back and visit and kind of spend time there to bring this place back to life for yourself? 
So I'm, I'm actually in my childhood home in New Jersey right now. My mom still lives here and, and uh, she's 90 and I come back quite a bit to, to spend time with her. So in that sense, the, the place is still very much alive in, in my mind. I, th- I think that, that you, you made a, an astute comment there, though, about tr- you know, Tracy, I think, is somewhat conservative. You know, I, I think... I think she would see herself as a feminist and, and subscribes to that feminist idea that she should be able to compete on an even playing field with men. But I think her political predilection, she's, she's kind of uh, rigid and, and she says like she believes in rules and laws and she originally wanted to be a prosecutor and I think probably would have been like a kind of quote unquote moderate Republican. I, I believe in my, in my heart that she wouldn't be a Trumper just because the thing that drives her most crazy is sort of unearned male privilege, which I think mm-hmm. Trump sort of embodies that. But um, yeah, I, th- I think, you know, because I did grow up in this conservative Catholic world, I think that that worldview is is in me as well. And I sometimes have to struggle with it. So it's not like it's some external thing that I have to report on. It's like an impulse that I recognizing myself. And I never find it surprising, you know, when, when like Samuel Alito, a guy with a name like Alito writes this uh, Dobbs decision and, and you know, Scalia, you know, th- this, this sort of conservative Catholic interest in hierarchy and, and the law as a kind of a very punitive instrument. That's something that I feel like was inculcated in me in my childhood and I've had to struggle against it. And I just think there are other people who have embraced it and don't struggle against it. Do you know this high school? Like, do, do you have like a physical map of this high school in your brain of, of what you modeled this place after? Because the, the school itself is, that's where most of the book takes place. So it felt like a very real place to me. Well, you know, it's, it, it's interesting. So it's a combination of the high school that I went to, which, which is still standing, and then the high school that my kids went to, which um, actually just got demolished. Um, and so the physical descriptions of it are really the um, the high school that my kids went to. This it has a, a kind of a you know flat brown and pink building, but that has this beautiful little pond in front of it. And and I think that's <laughs> the uh, principal says it's a little bit like the Taj Mahal, which was a, <laughs> a, little, a little joke. But but I I think there's just something I don't even describe it that much. I mean I, there's there's you know brief attempts to describe it, but I think. It's one of those locations that I feel like all I need to do is trigger memories in my reader and they'll kind of imagine their own idea of a sort of middle class American, like a mythic space. You know, I, I, I don't know what it would be like to have gone to, a, say, a prep school with that, that felt like a college. Like there's just something much more utilitarian about most American public high schools, you know, the long corridors and the you know, everything happening in one building rather than a kind of campus where you get to walk across a green to get from one place to the next. It's all just, you know, in these halls. Being forced to visit the front desk lady. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, just locker upon locker upon locker. You recently wrote a great piece for Lit Hub. I'll, I'll pick your brain about writing things in the last minutes we have together about sort of drawing a timeline around your novels and the importance of that, of kind of reining them in, in time. And so this book obviously is set around this 
choosing of these, you know, the Hall of Fame and and whether or not Tracy is going to make it to to be principal. And I was wondering if you could, you know, for people who haven't read that Lit Hub essay, sort of summarize why why you came to the conclusion that that drawing a time map around your narrative was was so important for you. I have an unpublished first novel in my drawer, like many novelists that I know. It just it's it's a hard form to to master, and and I still struggle, you know, with with the form of the novel. Um, and my first novel, I think, probably like a lot of people's, it, it was a kind of a family novel with multiple main characters, and I think it was about a family that wins the lottery, and their lives kind of get chaotic in all sorts of ways. And so I had a great premise and I think the book started really well, but when the, this money entered the lives of this family, people just sort of spiraled off. And I think what you need in a novel is a way to keep, you know, keep your characters together and to create drama and conflict. And I had built this engine that just sent them flying away from each other. And, and so I had them all on these separate trajectories and I couldn't, get them back and the book theoretically could have just gone on forever but but in a very <laughs> unsatisfying way and and just a lot of editors who read it said I was really fascinated by this book for the first half and then I just felt the energy kind of dissipate you know and and I knew they were right you know I think that's the that's what you know sometimes you can really resent editors but <laughs> when they're right you know um but I knew when they said it like my heart would sink because that was how I had experienced the writing and, you know, I just said, I'm not going to do that again. I, how can I avoid this dissipation of, of en narrative energy? Um, you know, and there are writers who are so good that it doesn't matter. Like they can just entertain you with their sentences. And I think I, I just realized, like, I'm not that kind of writer. I need to kind of create a form that um, builds energy. And, and so when I had the idea for election, I thought, oh, this will solve my problem because an election is is a contest. It has a start date. It has an end date. It has, you know, all this, you know, it is conflict. It's, you know, <laughs> inherent <laughs> conflict. And once I had that, then I realized I could, you know, still build characters and do, you know, have good, do all the fun things that, that I knew how to do, but that there was this sort of tension that was, was built in. And the novel was, is sort of short and it has a kind of it has a very intricate plot for the for how short it is. I was just I was just surprised by how much better a writer I was when I was working within these constraints and and I knew where I was headed. And and so, you know, I, I just have tried to hold on to that through my career. I, I haven't there are some novels that are much more compressed and and time limited like little children takes place over a summer it ranges a lot into the past but the the forward line is is really one summer the wishbones takes place between a marriage proposal and the wedding but something like the leftovers is much more um wide ranging and and maybe loose but but it actually has a, a spine in time that's that's very clear it's the uh, length of a pregnancy actually so i just i just have tried to be really careful as as a novelist tracy flick can't win is about this hall of fame so it begins on the day that or more or less begins on the day that somebody proposes the hall of that kyle proposes the hall of fame and and more or less ends on the day of the induction ceremony, though there's a bit of an epilogue. Using that kind of 
built-in time frame just makes me a better writer. It sounds like it's both a matter of the time frame, so wrapping a, you know, a start and an end date around something and keeping your characters together. So as you say, this this unpublished novel, they don't go flying off on their own. They have to something has to artificially keep them in the room, which, you know, for this book obviously is they have to keep meeting to decide this Hall of Fame or they, you know, they they can't wander away from each other. And uh yeah, both of those because the middles are so difficult. I just feel like the energy and momentum can often in a novel get lost in the middle of what's what's keeping the engine of the story going. And one of the things that really helped this as well is just the the switching of points of view, because you're always wondering what the characters are up to when you're not with them. So that that also seems like it it's helpful for writers to have some place to move yeah. around to. And, and and I do think sometimes it's a matter of understanding your own strengths, you know, and I think I think I'm pretty good at knowing when to cut off scenes and, and you know, how to transition into the next one, whether I want that to be a kind of natural transition or a very jarring transition that puts you into a whole other headspace. It, it's it's I really like the way that this form allows for fun or provocative or or startling transitions. Now that so many of your works have made it onto the screen, either television or movie, and and I know you wrote the pilot. I think you wrote the pilot for the the leftovers. I don't know. I, how I worked on the leftovers for three years. I, I yeah. was in the writers' room for that show the whole time. Has that changed the, your approach to fiction at all? Any of those techniques that you use in in movies or film or TV? Do you bring those back to, or or is your the way you approach the novel just kind of set? I would actually say that working in TV and film has made me more aware of the literary tools that are at my disposal as a novelist and and to not take them for granted, like the fact that I can go into a character's head and, and explore their memories. That's very hard to do on screen. I mean, you can do an occasional flashback, but it's not something you can, you know, jumping around in time can be difficult uh, on on screen, but it's it's so available when, when you're writing fiction and, and inner monologues can be, you know, I mean, some a book like Tracy Flick Can't Win is essentially just inner monologue, one inner monologue <laughs> after another, you know, and, and so I, I do, I think, actually take advantage more of, of the literary tools that aren't available to me as a screenwriter. On the other hand, I think screenwriting really puts a premium on narrative energy. And I've been really um, focused on that idea lately. Like I really wanted Tracy Flickant win to just flow like a, a, a good movie, just, just to not have almost, I just didn't want the reader to have the option of, of putting it down, kind of, <laughs> right. you know, which is some, some often considered like a, not a liter, not so literary and impulse, you know, it's kind of comes from genre fiction, but I actually really, it's just something I love about, you know, a good TV show or movie, just that sense of being hypnotized by it. And I was trying to figure out if I could keep that kind of energy throughout a, a, the course of a whole novel. Well, I'll try and ask this question carefully because we don't want to give anything away about the end. But the um, this this ability to achieve surprising inevitability, which is every writer's goal. And I think it kind of has to be done on the subconscious level. I'm going to just guess that uh, without giving the ending away that you didn't you perhaps didn't see the ending coming either, because I, I know that's just kind of how you have said that you write, that you don't always know how things are going to end up. Like you you knew that it probably was going to end when the, the induction ceremony happened generally. But I'm wondering if there's anything you can say about kind of knowing when you've hit the right 
note or if you have any tips in general about achieving surprising inevitability? Yeah, well, I think I, you're absolutely right that I did not know for a long time. And and I think if you go back and read the book a second time, you can you can almost see how late it is when the seed <laughs> gets planted <laughs> for, for the ending. So I tried to know half of it, which was, you know, the, the book was structured so that everything was going to come to a head at a certain moment. But I didn't know what the thing was that that was going to happen. I knew there were just so many opportunities for things to happen in that moment because everybody is there and all the cards are on the table. And, and uh, you know, then I, I have this sense of like, oh, this could happen. And if it makes me really, really uncomfortable, you know, I start to that's that's like a good sign because <laughs> I, I thought, no, I can't do that. And then I, then it would be like, no, I have to do that. <laughs> do that. And, and, you know, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate you not being specific about it, but the ending is definitely something that I've noticed some readers having very different reactions to, and, and that's okay too. You know, I, I love the idea that, as you say, there's some surprise, but it, it feels inevitable. You know, if it's jarring, you know, I, I do think the way it's jarring is something that is unfortunately um, way too familiar. We'll leave that at that. I don't know if you have last minute advice. You've been in this industry for so long over so many different genres of it now between screenwriting and, and novel writing and short story writing. And, you know, I don't know if you have advice on new writers, thoughts about MFAs these days. Thought, I mean, the industry has changed so much, I know, since you since you started writing and your path is, you know, comfortably set. But I don't know if you have insights for people just getting started in the field. That is a, a really interesting thing because, you know, when I started out, you know, I just, I imagined that I would be a professor at some small college and writing, you know, the occasional story collection. And that seemed like a, like a perfectly, perfectly good life. And it, it still does. I think those jobs are harder and harder to find. I never found one myself. And that turned out to be okay for me. It, it, it forced me to think of myself as a working writer. It pushed me to accept certain opportunities, like to, to do some screenwriting, which had never been a goal of mine, but suddenly there was an opportunity and I was so aware of this is a precarious profession and I should try and seize any opportunity that that comes my way. And it turned out that that was a good thing, like in a lot of different ways. So I would just say, it's really precarious and you have to improvise and sometimes get out of your comfort zone and, and uh, write in sometimes forms that are not your ideal ones. Um, I, I ghost wrote teen horror novels. I hmm. uh, wrote some ad copy for small local radio stations in upstate New York. And, and I, that's one thing I don't regret any paid writing that I ever did. I think to treat writing, learn to treat writing as a kind of a job was a useful thing for me because it did turn out to be a job. It's, all, it's always art on the highest level, but it's always also a job. You mentioned Elizabeth Stroud a little earlier. Do you read amongst your contemporaries quite a bit, or do you read a lot of nonfiction to understand the hell's going on in our country? Yeah, I read uh, voraciously. I mean, that's to me is always the the one thing that all the writers I know have in common. We, we just read voraciously. My, my appetite for fiction, sometimes I have to kind of stay away from it if I'm writing, if I'm deep in a novel and I don't want somebody else's 
you know, I don't, I don't want to have that feeling, which which we always have. You know, you start reading somebody really good like Elizabeth Stroud and you just go like, I should write like that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. I'm not Elizabeth Stroud. I can't write like that. Um, so I often when I'm in the thick of a novel, I'm reading a lot of nonfiction just because it somehow it defends me from influence. And, I, and I, it's not because I think influences are bad. It's just there. I'm I'm I can fall under the spell of somebody else's style really easily and, and there are times when that's good and other times when it, it kind of might alienate me from my own work and my own voice at a time when I don't need that but uh, yeah I do I read a real mix I listen to a lot of audiobooks which I think has probably changed the way I write like I've just become so much more conscious of the flow of the words spoken out loud and and the uh, ability of of a well-read book to kind of create that feeling of hypnotism that that I mentioned before this this um just there's just something really beautiful about the cadence of of good sentences in your head yeah I've been doing that too and it does I think it does change the way that I've been writing too and I also appreciate I'm just going to get this in under the wire you writing from all of these different you know lately we've been told don't take on an Asian woman's voice because that's not your lane. And I really appreciated you taking on all these different voices. I think you wrote women beautifully. And I was just listening to a podcast about who who gets to tell these stories. And the the idea behind it was just you have to do a good job. If you do a good job, you can you can do anything. But writing them in flat stereotypes isn't going to pull it off. But you uh, you never let that happen. So I I appreciated that. Oh well, I I appreciate your saying it I just feel like to the extent that we're gonna have novels that can describe a community or even a, even a family you're just gonna have to as a writer be able to create characters and create voices that go beyond the limits of your own identity um, I understand why there's a real fascination with autofiction and and these writers who just want to stick to the limits of their own lives and and those books can be great but they are so limited i mean uh, compared to you know big old fashioned social novel and and i don't want that tradition to just die out i think there's something to be said for the ability of novels to describe the experience of people living together in communities and and that means that you have to get beyond just the identity of the author. We need more voices, that's for sure. I, I'm not saying that, but I think all those voices also need to be able yeah, to right. you know, stretch out. Exactly right. Well, thanks for sticking with me for 15 years so far. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. You're always so much fun to talk to. <laughs> well, come back, come back, keep writing, come back and, and we'll do it again. I sure appreciate this. Uh, well, thank you so much. That was Tom Parada. The book is Tracy Flick Can't Win. It's out and available and published by Scribner. In addition to our Patreon page, you can also visit our websites. Barbara's is barbarademarcobarrett.com or penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com, M-A-R-R-I-E-S-T-O-N-E.com. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week, and thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.